Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of James Talks. Um, I'm James Prescott and welcome. Today I've got yet another guest on here. I'm really excited to introduce to you Andy Cumbo. Um, and say hello, Andy. <laughs> Hi. Andy is a, um, a writer, a coach and a farmer as well. Um, so um, we're going to be talking a bit about her story, about spirituality, creativity, and all sorts of stuff. So I'm just going to get right into it. Um, so Andy, just tell us a bit about your story. Sure. Um, I live in Virginia in the U.S. Uh, so James has that lovely London accent. I have a southern one that'll come out the more I talk. You'll hear it. Um, and I uh, run a farm. And I write and edit, like James said, and then um, I do a lot of other things, like research and place people. And But all of the things, I've been blessed to come to a place where I do everything I do, I choose to do. Um, and I make my living doing the things I love. And that's, I think, a, a real blessing. So um, here at our farm, it's called God's Whisper Farm, and it's a small space um, for American farm standards, about 15 acres. We have six goats and 23 chickens and four <laughs> dogs and four cats. And awesome. um, we have the animals because they help us bring some income, but they also are just part of a way we're creating a space that's about relaxation and rest and respite for people. So our hope is that people will come here and, and take a break, um, that they'll come and, and enjoy the space and they'll enjoy the animals and if they want to work on creative projects, that's great. If they just want to come and take walks and do puzzles and read books, then that's great too. Um, but that's our whole dream for this space that we have. And we do some other things. We do book readings and concerts here. But all of those things are with the idea of uh, fostering community and, and giving people a space where they can just step back a little bit. That sounds really, really um, awesome. So how did the, how did kind of that, that space come about? What's kind of the story behind it? Um, no, that's, it's a long story, but I'll make it as short as I can. Um, I was married to another person earlier in my life, and um, that marriage did not work. And after he left, I sort of, I just was lost. I had been an English professor um had my first full-time professorship and loved teaching, still do love teaching, but I, I was in a place that wasn't, I wasn't feeling great. I just didn't feel fulfilled. Something wasn't working out right. And I went, went to church one Sunday morning at uh, the Mennonite congregation I was a part of, and the pastor, his name is Jesse Johnson, is one of those, those people that's just meant to be a pastor. Like, he's just a really good preacher. Mm. Um, and he was doing a sermon on the passage where Elijah is in the cave, and he hears God's, what we hear always say, still small voice. But Jesse said, um, that actually translates more accurately from Hebrew to be God's whisper. And I thought, what a brilliant way to think about how God speaks. I mean, we often talk about God speaking to people, but mm. the idea that God would whisper, um, and I, I just thought about the way sometimes we whisper to get someone's attention. Sometimes the best way to capture someone is to make them really pay attention to something quiet. 
And that was sort of this idea, that sort of got this idea for me going about God speaking in quiet spaces. And so I kind of took that idea and coupled it with this growing dream I had for a farm, um, Hmm. wanting to nurture things, but not necessarily. I'm very introverted. So knowing that going out and maybe doing big events and things was not going to be my style. I'm much more of a one-on-one or small Hmm. group person. So I sort of blended those two things together and started this dream for a farm. And uh, a couple years later, my mom got very sick. She had melanoma cancer. And she was dying, and I came home to be with her as she died and um, to help take care of her. And my dad was there, and my brother was there, and we all were with her, which was wonderful. But when she passed, I suddenly had this void. I had left all the teaching positions I had to come care for her. Um, and I could have gotten them back, but it just it didn't feel right to leave my dad. I didn't feel ready to, to sort of step back into my life. And so my dad said to me, live with me for a year. I will pay your bills, and you can write a book. So I did write a book, but also in that time, he decided he wanted to use the money he and my mom had saved uh, to travel after they retired to do something for my brother and I. So he sent my sister-in-law to business school, and he bought me the farm. And Um, and that was probably, I mean, it was truly divine. There was absolutely no way I was going to have a farm. Uh, I mean, it would have been decades before I'd saved the money to buy land, but my dad had it and really wanted to do it. And so he bought just me this 10 acre place with a 757 square foot house on it. And, uh, it was a mess. Um, cats had been living in it. (laughs) So my dad and I spent six months fixing it up. And mm. made the house livable, got the grounds cleaned up, and I moved in. And two months later, I met the man who's now my husband. And wow. Philip is amazing. He just bought completely into this idea. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to sort of meet someone and, and really like them and think that's going to work. It's another thing to meet a woman like her, and then she also comes with a farm and a dream for how that farm's going to be. And yeah. so but just bought it all together. And so we're now married. It's been two years we've been married. And we have a new farm now. We moved a little closer to where Philip works, so he can be a little bit more, spend a little less time in the car and a little more time on the farm. And so here we are. That's what we're doing. That's fantastic. That's absolutely amazing. It's amazing how just how kind of out of a lot of conflict that you've been through, that there's been a lot of blessing as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I mean, truly I would want my mom to still be here. Like, But I also wouldn't trade who I've become because she died. Like, it really did shape who I am, and I I like who I am. So, um, and I say that with humility. I don't mean I'm very proud of myself. I just think I'm living, I've learned, or I am learning, maybe the better way to say it, more and more to live into who God made me to be. And and I'm happy with that. I'm really, really happy with that. But so I don't wish anyone trials or conflicts, but I do think we can grow from them and and really learn a lot. Yeah, I mean I I, I, I totally understand what you mean because I I lost my mother about fifteen years ago. Uh and it's the same, you know, I would I you know, I wouldn't have wished it to happen at all and 
but also I wouldn't want to trade who I've become as a result of that, what that happened, what happened, because right. it shaped me in ways that wouldn't have shaped me, that I wouldn't have grown, um, areas I wouldn't have grown if it hadn't happened. So, you know, right. I say it's kind of a paradox there, isn't there? Kind of that you wouldn't, that you, that you want to change what you want to change what happened if you could, but you wouldn't want to change what it did to you, kind of, in a That's sense. That's right. That's well said. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, there's that song, isn't there? I, I, um, it's called. I think it's called "Hurt." Um, it was um, Johnny Cash's last song, and there's this there's this line: um, "If I could keep, um, if I could, if you could, basically, I think it's if you could do your life again, then he would keep himself. You know, if you could start again, he'd keep himself. You know." Um, and I think that's that's really really true. Mhm. That's beautiful. I have to look for that song. Yeah, it's called "Hurt." It's the last song he did. Actually, he recorded it a couple of weeks before he died. Not long before he died. Um, I think not weeks, but a few months. But um, he didn't even write it actually. But um, it was somebody else wrote it. But no, nobody remembers their version now because his version's so so. I mean, the video of it's so powerful. Everyone check that out. Seriously, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, so. Obviously, you are, um, part of your work is writing, and um, um, so what, what kind of th- does that look like in your life? Well, I, when I, uh, I've worked full-time full for three years as a college professor, and it, I'm a writer. I love to teach, but I'm a writer that is carved into my soul, and so I was not writing as a professor, so I quit, and it, it's taken me Oh, five or six years <laughs> to get to a place where I can support myself doing this. I mean, there were some lean years. The first year I lived on the farm, I made twelve thousand dollars, which you know, eighteen—not not a lot, mm-hmm. no, not enough to really live on. Um, but I mean, God was faithful, and I had everything I needed. But it was a hard year, so um, I just took every bit of work I could get that had to do with writing. So whether it was editing or I, for a while, did social media posts for toilet companies, portable toilet companies. Um, wow. From, you know, I, did, I just did anything that had to do with work. Um, and I built up a portfolio, and I, and I learned a lot of skills um, to market myself as a writer, but also just ways to help other writers. I mean, I'm a very big believer in literary citizenship, and so um, – I wanted to use those skills to help other people. So in the process of doing that, I got more clients, and now I actually have the honor of sometimes not being able to take work because I have enough. So I, I edit books. That's mostly what I do with my time. Um, but I also coach writers, um, clients who are in the process of writing books at different stages. Um, I run a writing community online um, that's free. Your listeners are welcome to join us. It's just a bunch of us sitting around talking about writing and setting goals and um, I do weekly emails with Tom, you know, just stuff to kind of help writing can be really lonely and we yeah. have all these wonderful social media tools. So this is a way to, for us to just connect um, and I just facilitate that. And then I do, when I'm not doing that kind of work, I, I, my passion is really research and writing about um, American slavery, particularly mm. about the lives of people who were enslaved so uh, I'd say about a third to maybe a half of my time now, I'm doing research in archival documents here in Virginia about local plantations, 
to find out as much as we can about the people who were enslaved there, you know, find their names first and foremost, and then find what they did, you know, on the plantation, what their work was, who were they married to, what children did they have, where did they go after they were freed. And I try to put some stories together around those folks. So that's really my passion, and then out of that comes a real deep passion for racial justice and racial reconciliation, which I'm sure in the U.K. is also an issue, but it's certainly an issue here in the U.S. that we're, we're really struggling with. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it has been an issue here, definitely, but um, I notice it more now, and I mean, a lot, of us, a lot of us on social media especially would have seen, it's on the news all the time, there's, there's racial incidents happening in different parts of the U.S., you know, racial violence and that kind of thing, and... Um, Obviously, you, people need to take a stand against it, and you know it's all these kind of injustices which go on. It's, um, I personally, I'm kind of uh, involved in taking a stand for, you know, gender equality and, and sexual sexual equality here. Um, and you know, I mean, all of us have our own kind of passions, our own kind of causes that we're passionate about, and and racial equality is a very, very important issue and you've written a book haven't you about this already um i think it's called isn't it called the slaves have names is that correct mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it's about i grew up my dad lives on and i grew up on what was a plantation here in virginia and so that book i wrote uh the year after my mom died was two years but um was about people that were enslaved there and i i grew up there moved there when i was in high school so i was 14 and, and uh, you know, my dad has lived there ever since. I'm 40 now, so that's 26 years. And most of that time, no one ever talked about those people. It wasn't sort of like it was hidden. No one was, I don't think you live in Virginia and you aren't aware of plantation slavery. That would just be, you couldn't do that in the American South. But it just wasn't talked about. People just weren't engaging with it. And I just suddenly, I mean, I think this was a total God thing. God just said, this is what you're going to do. This is what you need to do. There are a lot of things that would be a lot easier to write about for many reasons. Um, but this is this is just what I've been called to. And, it, you know, you can look back. I can look back over my life and say I've been led to this. You know, I worked on Dr. Martin Luther King's papers when I lived in California for a little while. I went to a, a graduate school for writing that was very interested in social justice. I mean, there's just been a series of events that have made it very clear this is kind of the work I'm going to do. Um, but, yeah, The Slaves Have Names is the book that came out of that project. So. Yeah, that's fasc- it's fascinating that you talk about the, your creative process because, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm very much a believer in that you write about, as a writer, that you write about the stuff that's going on inside of you, the stuff that God stirs up inside of you. Um, and you have to, then you connect with whatever that is, and and then you make it, and you share it, um, and you put it out there into the world for people. And that kind of as a, I mean, that's, I mean, this applies to all different kinds of all callings. But as a writer, I feel like well, okay, this is a, this isn't a possess, this this isn't kind of a possession. That writing is something that God has given me, um, so I have to steward that, and I have to be faithful with that, and I have to honor that and the, the way i do that is by becoming the best writer i can by um by making the work that that god is calling me to make listening to what he's putting on my heart and creating that and then putting it out there into the world for people to to read and if nobody reads it well that's no problem it's just my job is to create the work and to share it and if i've done that and i've been faithful and i've 
you know, and I've stewarded that gift well. Um, that's certainly how I kind of see that. I mean, is that, is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I don't think, I mean, for a lot of reasons, when I just think that's the way God calls people and uses people, no matter what our gifts are, mm. that we're just asked to use them faithfully and, and, and hand over the outcome. But I also just feel like there's part of the handing over the outcome is realizing that's much healthier because you can't control whether people buy your book or read your website or you can't, there's no way to control that. So how much better is it to just put it into much more capable hands and say, I've done my work and now I give it to you because there's, you know, you could stress yourself out counting book sales or blog numbers. Or I just, it's not worth it. You know, the work is the work. My friend Lorraine told me when I finished the slave cab name, that I was like, I don't know what to do now. And she was like, you write the next thing. You just write the next thing. Yeah. And I thought that was just brilliant. You know, it's just, and that's the advice I give people all the time. Just do the next thing. Whatever the next thing is, just do it. That's it. I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, and right, the other thing I would say about that is, you know, there's a lot of writers who uh, I see who they come across certainly like you, unless your unless your work gets to a big audience, uh, then it's not worth anything. And basically, kind of implying that unless unless you have a like a what people what what kind of consumerism would call an impact on the world. As in, like, lots of people know what you did and or you got lots of money or you got further in your career than you could or whatever, then if you don't do that, then you're a failure, you know. Um, yeah. And your life was worth nothing. And I think... And I always... When I, when, I heard, when I read that, I was so... I felt like it was kind of an insult to a lot of people and to God, in a sense, because God's given us all these gifts and these passions and okay. he doesn't... But he doesn't tell us, he doesn't give them to us for the results. He's not like, he doesn't guarantee us the results. He just says, this is what I've given you to do. Do it. Right. And it's not up to you what the outcome is. And, you know, That's right. you know um, and, and actually, I mean, I'm going to talk about this in another podcast, probably in more detail, but ultimately we're all going to die. And in about a hundred years, most of us won't be, won't be remembered other than by distant relatives, you know, right. you know. Not unless we're very, very lucky, you know. So, but so what, you know? If to me, it's about the kind of person you're becoming and the kind of person you're, the kind of the way you're living, and whether you're being faithful and that kind of thing, rather than, oh, I want to be famous. I want to have my everyone know my name. I want everyone to remember me. I want thousands and millions of people to to know my work. You know, if you get your value out of that, I think you're missing the point, kind of thing. Yeah, and you're setting yourself up to be really disappointed because there's no way you're ever going to get enough. Like, if that's where you're placing your hope, it's not ever going to be enough because it's always going to seem unattainable. You haven't sold enough. You haven't reached enough. Yet. I just think it's dangerous. And then on the, on the, not on the flip side of that, but I think that sometimes as Christians we struggle with this idea of promotion. I've been talking that about that with some folks lately. This idea that, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't share what we do. But I feel like that's a sort of, to use a little bit of a Christian cliche, like hiding your light under a bushel. Like, God's not saying, write this and then don't share it with anyone. I mean, unless maybe that, you know, you're journaling and that's also great. But if you're, if you're publishing for other people, you also have to at least make it available to them without, you know, 
selling yourself all the time, it has to be out in the world, even as you disconnect from the results of that. I'm not sure I'm saying that clearly, but... No, I understand. I've been talking to a few people about this recently, and... Um... Yeah, it's it's a very tough balance because honestly, when you're promoting your work, your name's going to be on your work. So, yeah, there's a degree. I mean, there's a degree where it's kind of you could you could argue it's self promotion, but I would not say that. I mean, to me, it's more about promoting the message and about about saying, yeah, this is what God has given me to share. I'm I'm promoting that. I want people to see that. Because I think it's important. Because I believe in it, and I think it might help somebody else, you know. And it might not help everybody, and it might not be the final answer on everything. It might not, you know, it might not um, sell millions of copies or whatever. But but I'm putting it out there, you know. And, and if it helps one person, well, that's a bonus, you know. And actually, the thing I've learned as well is that the whole process of creating and sharing work, actually, we. When you're in that process, we actually grow. The people who are creating the work actually grow. So it already impacts one person if it doesn't impact anybody else. You know, ultimately, it's not about the result. It's not about the the outcome. It's not about what people think of you. It's not about numbers. It's a it's it's more about a process of who you're becoming. I think. Right. Well, I also think that yeah, there's a piece of that too about. There's a growth that comes in, in being vulnerable enough to share your creative work. Um, you know, it's, there are, it's very difficult to share work. It's terrifying. Um, I would think, you know, people always say, are you still terrified to get up in front of an audience because I do a lot of public speaking? You know, every single time, every single time, because I'm making myself vulnerable. I'm putting myself up there, and I could be a target. I mean, 99% of the time, people are incredibly gracious and incredibly nice. But people can be mean. So when you put your work out there, something you care about a lot, you really are making yourself vulnerable. But there's a strengthening that comes in that because there's nothing – you're not guarding yourself. You're trusting that the divine hands will guard you. And I feel like that's a pretty a pretty profound growth experience for – at least for me, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, any – Anytime you make yourself truly vulnerable, it's an act of courage, you know. Um, um, you know, I've written blog posts which are very, very honest and vulnerable, and you know, I've said things about myself which, I, you know, I, I part of me didn't want to want to share it. You know, I'm not bigging myself up at all, but um, because other people do it as well. But it's 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 a difficult thing to do, you know, to admit your weaknesses to a certain extent. Um, it's yeah, it's a but that's part of the creative process, and I, I've found certainly that writing is very very therapeutic. Whether it's writing for me, my own kind of journal, or whether it's writing for for my blog or, or books or whatever, that actually the whole process of it is is quite therapeutic. Yeah, I think so too. I do think that all those writers, Joan Didion and everyone else, I think on earth says, I write to your available what I think. You know, that for me, I'm a verbal processor. Like, so if I don't talk it through or write it through, I actually don't really understand what's going on with me. Like, I might be, I might know I'm sad or angry or excited, but until I put it into words in some way, I don't actually even understand what I'm saying, what I'm feeling. So 
And I think a lot of people are like that. I just finished Brené Brown's new book, Rising Strong. Oh, uh, yeah. Phenomenal. I've, I've got my copy. <laughs> I've got my copy. I'm just about to read it. So. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So I would say that she reads, she reads the audio, which is what I listen to. And she may not be her own best reader, but, but the content was still really good. So but she says in there that one of the things that she recommends is when people are having a reaction to something, like a physical, emotional reaction, that they write what she calls SFDs, and she takes that from Anne Lamott's shitty first draft thing, but she calls them stormy first drafts. And she says, because you have to work through it, you know, write down what you're doing and get, get it worked out. And I thought that was just such a... Um, a profound, it was profound for me as a writer, but also just to sort of acknowledge that that could be helpful to anybody as they work through something. I mean, I think writing can be immensely healing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. So, um, so you have a so you have a blog and you write books and you do coaching and all that kind of thing. I've seen and everybody check out her blog. It's pretty good, pretty awesome. So. Um, I would recommend that definitely. Lots of wisdom there, so um, check that out. So I just wanted to talk about again your the farming and the kind of your yeah. kind of spiritual kind of connections there because I um, I've heard you talk about elsewhere how there's kind of a spiritual dimension to what you do in terms of your farming and um, yeah. how does that kind of work itself out? We're constantly working it out. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're interested in making a place where all people are welcome. And um, and that comes directly out of our faith and our way of understanding how God operates in the world, which is not, you don't share my faith, so you can't be here. Your sexual orientation is one I'm not comfortable with, so you can't be here. We don't want to do that. We just want to say, you can come, and you come as you are right now, and you're going to be accepted. And... And we may have hard conversations, not that we're, I'm not interested in challenging anybody about anything. I feel like people get challenged about the hard things in their lives or not. But I'm interested in, in good conversations. I'm interested in hearing people's stories. And, um, and that's what we're trying to do here is make a place where no matter what your race, your nationality, your gender, you can come and sit at a table and know that first and foremost you're loved and accepted for who you are. And um, and we're it will that will be a challenge. Um, it'll be a challenge for our, my husband and I. We're both introverted, and yeah. um, hard conversations are challenging. But we we feel very strongly. I call it radical hospitality. That we're being called a radical hospitality. And um, and so some of the things that we do here are like we're having. Um, John Francis, he's an amazing musician. He's coming in a couple weeks and doing a concert. And he was a friend of Johnny Cash, John Carter Cash's, so it all comes back around. That's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Is this strange? So he's coming to, he played at our wedding, and he's coming to do a concert. But we always do, when we do evening events, we do a potluck dinner. And we just invite people to bring whatever food they want and sit around. We do a bonfire, and we just talk. People get to know one another. Um, it's a way for people to meet face-to-face. But our friends groups are so diverse. Um, my husband works as a car guy. I have this literary community. We have friends who are not Christians and friends who are Christians, and we just invite everybody to come and sit down at the table together 
and hang out, you know, and we feel like that, we don't do that a lot, I think. I think as a culture, we tend to divide to groups by people we share something with, um, a hobby, a faith, you know, music fascination, but we just, um, we're just interested in having people come. So that's sort of the spiritual element of that. And we're also going to be building a room here where people can come and it'll be a retreat space and it'll have sort of a sliding scale so people can pay if they're able and if they can't, they won't have to. And um, just kind of give people a place to walk away from the world that can be so busy and hard. So That sounds amazing. I mean, to, I mean, I, I can't help, couldn't help thinking when you were talking about that, that it, it's like, this is, this is, you know, it's kind of like church, you know, just a bunch of people getting together, hanging out in a space where everyone is welcome and accepted as they are for just because they, just because they are not because of, and then there's no dividing lines. There's no, you know, all the, all the barriers, all the kind of groups that we, that kind of culture creates kind of, you know, whether it's sexual boundaries or, or gender or race or whatever, that all of those kind of fall down and it's just everyone together and having community and, um, in a safe space, you know. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what we hope, anyway. That's what we what we strive for. So far, it's been amazing. We've had Sean Bucker came and did a reading a couple months ago. Gosh, I love that man. And he brought his family, and they were a bunch of other kids here, and they have five children. They were all out playing baseball in the field out here, and everybody else was just sitting around talking, making s'mores, and it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful a wonderful night, and Sean's latest book is about death. And so we had this in, this wonderful conversation about death around the fire amongst 30 people who, you know, two hours before didn't even know each other. It was just amazing. So. Ah, fantastic. Love to go there. Look, I love those yeah. kind of places where where you just have you just have that space, and people come together, and they can just be vulnerable. You know, um, we don't have enough of that. You know, even I mean, even in churches now, we don't have enough of that because everyone knows each other in church, and that that can be a good thing. But actually, sometimes it can be a bad thing because you you start to kind of keep things away from people because you don't want other people to hear it. You know what I mean? So there's one in one sense, it's, it can be good to go away sometimes and meet people you don't know and don't know who you are, and just be vulnerable and just have community and um, that kind of thing. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, you'll have to come over. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're reading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I've got enough money to come over to the States, yeah, that's one of... You're one of the places on my list. I've got, got a few places. I that's need to, awesome. Um, um, yeah, so how has that kind of affected your own kind of spiritual growth? You know, I... I just talked with Lisa Colon Delay about this a few weeks ago, and it's actually helpful for me to talk through it again, that verbal processor piece. But I'm really in a post-evangelical place right now. Like, I'm very – and I don't use that in the sort of – I don't even really know what the term means when other people mean it, use it. But I, for me, it just means I'm in a place where I'm not sure what church uh, needs to look like which sounds like I think church needs to serve my needs, and I, I don't think it does. But I don't know. Right now, I don't know what 
what I'm looking for in church, I think is the way. So I'm sorry, my dogs are barking in the background. Welcome to farm life. Um, <laughs> but for me, gathering people together, it, it feels very much, as you were saying, much like church, where I can deeply connect with people in a real way. Um, and of course I do that out of my own Christian walk. No, um, but honoring that not all people look at the world through that lens, you know, so respecting that my neighbor, Ursula, who's wonderful, is an atheist. And yet she just loves really good music. And so she comes here and she asks really good questions. And, and there's, you know, I grew up evangelical, so there's a part of me that thinks maybe I could witness to her. But I'm more and more moving away from that and more and more just becoming coming to a place where I trust that God's love will reach people if I if I'm part of creating a space where they can feel it, and that I don't have to be I don't have to carry the responsibility of that, and so I think that's sort of where I am. I'm also reading the books of Chronicles right now, and so I'm totally screwed up about what I think about theology at the moment, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> so because yeah. I'm like I don't get the Israel God thing. So I'm also in a place where I'm looking at this idea of a chosen people. And then what am I, What do I do with this belief that I'm called to a place where I don't want to choose people? I don't want to see people as God's chosen. I want to see all people as God's chosen. So, so that's sort of where I am. That may have been a bigger answer than you were looking for, but that's it. That's a great answer. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I said this on the podcast a while back. You know, I think I'm, I myself have kind of moved beyond what you what people would label evangelical Christianity myself. I kind of... I'm kind of coming to, you know, explore a bit more about um, contemplative spirituality and um, the mystics and um, that kind of thing. And see, I'm beginning to see into connect, like connections between um, between that and between um, you know human consciousness and spiral dynamics and things like that, and the science of the universe and kind of meditation stuff and minimalism and like psychology and how the brain works and all of that kind of thing a lot of what Bernie Brown does and vulnerability and it's all kind of connected and it's it's, it's kind of bigger than than church kind of isn't no church isn't church isn't big enough is the wrong word but it's the wrong way of saying it but my, my, my perception of God has got bigger you know um, yeah. and I've kind of in my mind, I kind of moved beyond the kind of trappings of kind of evangelicalism, you know. I mean, I love my church. I, I love my church community. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very inclusive and they're full of grace and love and compassion. And we do lo- lots of great work in the community. And, um, and you know, uh, just, it's just a lovely, lovely group of people. And we have great teaching and everything. And it's fantastic. But there is a part of it. I don't know, I can't figure out what part of it, but, well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of beyond that, in a sense, um, beyond the kind of traditional kind of box, I suppose, of evangelicalism, you know, where I'm coming to see God in a new and kind of deeper, bigger way, and, and I'm still figuring that out at the moment, like, like you, just like you, you know, um, so it's interesting that a lot of people seem to be on a similar kind of journey, you know. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was just talking to someone yesterday about Thomas Martin, 
who I, I always say, if you get to heaven and you can't find me, I'm hanging out with Thomas Martin. Just look for him. You'll find me. Because um, I just think he, way before this was sort of the cultural moment, was looking at intersections of Catholicism and Buddhism and contempt, contemplation and, like, the mystics, all these things you were just talking about, not as a way to sort of supplant Christianity, because I don't think his devoutness and even his orthodoxness of faith ever changed. But, yeah, this bigger concept of how God might operate in the world and what that looks like in terms of um, our communities and, and our perceptions of things. I just think... Um, Maybe we're just in a world now that's too big. Like, we just know too much about the world for our boxes of how faith is supposed to work to really be able to be functional anymore. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. You know, my Muslim friends have profound things to teach me about understanding some aspects of the nature of God. Um, that probably because I've grown up a Christian and, and grown up hearing those stories, I don't hear as well anymore. But when I hear the same trait pulled from the point of view of someone whose language is different, mm. I sometimes understand a great deal more about about my God, you know. And I think when we don't allow space for that, we actually just, you know, hurt ourselves. You know, we're not we're not opening, we're, and we're hurting our chances of understanding God at least a little bit more. Here yeah. on this plane, so I do agree that you know you, you can find God wherever you kind of. If you if you've got your eyes open, you can see God everywhere. I think, um, I think you know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say all paths lead to God, like everyone, but I would say that you can see God where if you're if you're looking for God, you will find Him. You know, um, and there's definitely truth that you can get from other world religions, which you know, which tell you a bit about God. You know, um, you can't just say, oh, it's it's Muslim or it's Hindu or you know, so it's not so it's not Christian or it's gonna always going to possess me with some kind of demon or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that, some Christians do that, and I, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous, um, to be honest. But um, it's just having it's just having discernment, you know. I think, and I think that's yeah. that's the most important thing. Well, and trust, yeah, and trusting that a God who loves you and protects you isn't going to open your your questioning with your finite mind is not going to open you. He's not going to allow you to be, I use he, I haven't used the male pronoun for God in a long time. God is not going to allow you to be infiltrated, you know, in that sort of silly sense. You know, you're not knocking down a wall here. You're a person and God protects you. So I just think that there's a lot to be said for being not, not, not open-minded in the sense that you're not using your brain or using what you understand about God and Jesus and how they work in the world, but being open, more open to what's happening, I just think can be profoundly enriching. And it also just is, I don't know, it just seems to me the way God is, that mm. God is open. Otherwise, we're all pretty screwed. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, if you get to a place of certainty when it comes to God, I think you're in trouble because... God is not God. God is bigger than our brains, you know, and we can't. It's impossible for us to know everything about God, you know. It's impossible for us to control everything about God. It's impossible, you know. And people want certainty because that gives them security, 
And I think people mistake. Actually, I think people can mistake um, security in God for security in certainty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they think that oh, my yeah. security is in God, but actually, it's just in what they what they what they can control about God, what they know for a fact about God, and the certainty about God. It's not actually faith in God because faith, by definition, means that there's got to be stuff you don't know. There's stuff that you don't understand, right. and there's stuff that's okay. a bit, maybe a bit ambiguous that you're not not sure about, you know. And right. you have and you have to. There's another trust, you know. Um, yeah. So um, I think that's a really interesting, really, really important point to remember. But, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that. Um, yeah, I have to really think about that point about certainty because I think you're really on to something. I think that's sort of what we do when we moralize for people. You know, that behavior is wrong, that orientation is wrong, that whatever is wrong, or this is right. It's a, it's a, it is a matter of trying to exact control on something that we don't understand rather than simply saying, I don't understand I don't know how to make sense of the verses on homosexuality and what I really believe about homosexuality. I don't I, and, and you just hold that and say, I don't know what's the answer there, rather than moralizing and telling people this is right and this is wrong. You can sit in a place of question. That's at least where I come out. But, it, you know, and that's all, and I say all that, knowing people believe what they believe very devoutly. Yeah. And, 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 and with, deep conviction and deep prayer and deep belief. So I'm not, I'm trying my very best not to be judgmental about that. As long as we're all holding ourselves to a, a standard of love as the baseline. Um, yeah. I feel like that's, you know, really fundamental, maybe the only fundamental. Well, yeah, love has to be the beginning, doesn't it? The beginning and the beginning and end, you know? Um, and, and you're right about moralizing. I think I, I think, I mean, one of the things that's, that's helped me is understanding what the Bible is, um, and that that, it, that it's actually a library, not it's not one book. You know, it's because the word Bible means library, and it's a collection of books written by different people at different times in history to different audiences for different reasons, on different themes, and a culture that's not ours. So. Um, and of course, there are eternal truths in there. Of course, there are, um, you know, and and a lot. Of, some of it is history, and some of it isn't. And um, but it's. But when you understand what the Bible is, it actually makes it bigger and makes God bigger as well. So you can see how God has been changing people over history, um, and kind of the arc of God's story through history, and it makes it much more fascinating to me. Yeah, me too. I'm also a book person, so to uh, I I find personally reading say the story of Jonah as metaphor for me is richer because I'm able to see more depth of truth um, and not maybe get stuck in my finite brain about a fish can't swallow a person. You know what I mean? Like I, mm. you know, as much as I could believe, I do believe in miracles and things. I, I struggle with the literalness sometimes, but I can see a lot of richness. I mean, I can see Jonah in myself when I say, I don't really want to do that. 
I just really don't want to do that. God, you might be wrong about this one. Like, <laughs> that I can definitely see. And if I can, you know, get to the point of being, of just living in that metaphor, I find it really, really rich. And then I can kind of step outside the, the scientific arguments about it. Um, again, recognizing people believe this seems very devoutly, and that's also fine. Um, like, but I don't, I love thinking of, I like that. I'm going to say the Bible from the library. I'm going to tell my dad that later. He'll like that too. It totally revolutionized my, life. I had a guy called Steve Chalk, um, talk about this. Um, he's quite a major preacher in England and, um, he wrote a book, um, and he did a talk and I heard him talk about the Bible like this and it was like, oh yeah, you know, um, and it just changes everything, um. And it's amazing. I've talked to quite a few people, and I'm surprised. It surprises me actually that the number of people that don't don't actually realise that, you know, um, because it's just there. The word Bible, you know, um, and I didn't know till this year. I mean, I you know, I'm not going to claim I'm an expert here at all, but you know, I, I only found out this year. And but um, it just it just changes everything. It's just amazing how those little things yeah. can change everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. So, 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 what kind of what 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 are you working on at the moment? What projects are you kind of working on? Well, I'm doing. I finished a young adult novel in the spring, and um, apparently, right now, I'm hoping God is going to send me an agent because I'm not sending it out anywhere. So, <laughs> I, I'm not really hoping that. I'm just being. I'm being fearful about. I'm tired of being rejected. So. So I'll be sending that out now that I've said that out loud to more agents next week. Um, so that's sort of the, the piece that's done. But, again, because I'm sort of operate on Lorraine's advice and write the next thing, I'm in the process of I think I just finally this week pinned down what the book is going to be, which is I've been trying to figure out why I have this passion for farming and this passion for the history of enslavement. And so I think this new book is going to be um, – a story about an enslaved woman and her work on a farm. You know, most enslaved mm. people, at least in the rural South, were farmers Fascinating. of some sort. Yeah. So, but I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet. And maybe I think it's going to be fiction because I think, to be honest, I've sort of done what I can do with nonfiction about slave with enslaved people. There's just so little information. Um, I can't do a lot of storytelling around that because there's not enough data. But I know that here on our farm in Virginia, there were 13 people enslaved. And I know one of those people in 1850 was a 22-year-old woman. And um, I call her Judith. I don't really know, and I may never know what her name is. Mm. Um, but I'm thinking of sort of telling the story of her life here on this place. Wow, that sounds um, fascinating. Thanks. So that's, we'll see. I say that, and then, you know, tomorrow I'll be like, that's stupid, and I'll do something else. But, no, I'm pretty committed to that right now. <laughs> Great, fantastic. Well, it's been so good having you on on here. It's been a really, really great chat. Well, it's so nice to talk with you. Yeah, fantastic. So, yeah, that's that's all for this week on the podcast. Um, and I will hope to talk to you all soon.